Welcome to the Unveiling Grace podcast, a place to experience a grace that heals. Allow this grace to take your life and your relationships to another level as it frees you from the weight of performance-based religion. Enjoy another episode as Joel Groh and Lynn Wilder share encouraging stories and candid dialogue that can help you experience a grace that heals. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another Unveiling Grace podcast. Just so delighted you're with us and excited for today's episode. That's all I'm going to say because I'm Joel Grote. <laughs> and I'm Lynn Wilder. And today we're here with Costi Hinn. Does the Hinn name ring a bell? Well, Benny Hinn <laughs> is a rather um, well-known evangelist with the prosperity gospel. And we're going to talk a little bit about false faiths today and some things that we might all have in common and how works play into them. And then what's the difference with grace? Welcome, Costi. I know that you're famous kind of in the Christian world. Sometimes Mormons aren't as familiar with the Christian world. Would you introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, I'm first of all, just grateful to be here with you both. And I'm currently a pastor at a church and uh, I live in the Phoenix, Arizona area and actually planting a new church in Chandler, Arizona called the Shepherd's House. And so we're excited to serve the community and to support the people who are coming to that and being a part of that work. And then um, I've got a beautiful, incredible wife and we have four kids. And so we stay pretty busy. They're ages seven <laughs> down to 19 months old. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Plus you travel and you speak and you write books and, and now yep. you're a full-time pastor. Wow. Yeah. As I'm able, we do, I, I travel a bit and then um, usually in on the last flight possible I can get in and then out on the first flight possible. And our kind of phrase for this season of life is, we want to do our best to win at home. And so our focus is still here mm. with raising our kids and our marriage and being here as part of our church. But overall, yeah, I go help when I can. And we're grateful for the way the Lord has been allowing us to serve. Well, fantastic. And Joel and I are familiar with the church that Costi uh, was kind of sent out from Redeemer, Arizona, because we've done a number of work there because of yep. all the Mormons that are leaving yep. the church um, in Gilbert Mesa area and coming to know Jesus, at yep. least investigating biblical faith. Mm. Joel. I was going to say, and that's where Costi and I first met over coffee before a church service at Redeemer Bible. Yeah. Um, one Sunday. So yeah, delighted. Well, I, I guess just to start often with our guests, what we ask them to do is kind of give us their, a little bit of their spiritual background, where they come from, where God has brought them from. And a lot of times with people out of performance-based religions like Mormonism, what he's brought them out of. And so I know a lot of your story is in your book, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. Encourage people to pick that up. Um, just a great, great read, a lot of insight there on that. But go ahead and give us a little bit of your uh, spiritual family history background. Yeah, so I grew up in a fairly prominent family in the center of the prosperity gospel and what is known as the word of faith movement. The idea in my belief system was that I could make God do what I want and get what I want from God if I had enough faith, obeyed enough of whatever the anointed leader told me to do, and whether or not that was from the Bible, it only mattered that I would obey the leader who would 
usually claim to be an apostle or a prophet, and they would say things like, God told me to tell you, and here's what you need to do. And then also, if you gave enough money. And so the reason why what I would term it as, and many people do, the, pro it, the prosperity gospel, is it's the gospel, the quote, good news. And if you believe in Jesus, here's the good news. He is going to make you happy. He's going to make you healthy and heal you of all your issues. And he's going to make you wealthy. It's at times called um, the name it and claim it gospel because yes. people believe they can speak things into existence. And so just like you confess your sin and you confess your belief in God, Romans 10, 9 in the Bible says, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and you'll be saved. People say, well, just like you can confess getting saved and having salvation, you could confess getting healed. You could confess the new Bentley, the new job promotion, that baby you've been praying for. You can confess a perfect marriage. God wants all this for you if you would just ask, just believe, and just have enough faith. And so I viewed God as a magic genie who, if I rubbed him right by doing all these things, I would have his favor. I would have salvation. I would have riches. And my life would be amazing. And I never really stopped to think, you know, isn't a lot of the glory and treasure and in, in heaven, isn't that an eternal thing? I was taught very early on, oh, sure, there's a whole bunch of that in heaven and in eternity, but who says you can't have it now? So in a way, God was like a debit card machine. I swipe them right yeah. now and I can start tapping into his divine account. So the Book of Mormon says, if you live the commandments, you'll be blessed both temporally and spiritually. So if you get cancer, you must have done something wrong, right? If you, so this is not so different from the gospel that you're describing. I would say Mormonism is a prosperity gospel for that reason. And are you saying that that's a false gospel? I am. So I, I would say that I came to an understanding about 10 years ago of the true gospel, meaning true good news, nothing added to it, nothing taken away, the true gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, and that the gospel is about salvation. It's about his grace and his kindness and his mercy towards me. And nothing I do is going to make him make me rich. It's going to make him heal me. I began to study the Bible at face value. And this was really the, I think the explosive moment I've always referred to these little moments of questioning as cracks in the dam, as I thought, well, that doesn't really make sense or that doesn't, but then thinking, well, I better not question the anointed prophet. So um, yeah. that gets you into trouble. So the cracks in the dam started forming, but eventually it burst forth. And the simple moment was I was reading the Bible constantly and looking, and I began to see very simple patterns that you could not turn Jesus and healing and riches into a formula that he saved people and was kind to them and forgave their sins when they did not deserve it. He healed people who complained and whined like this man <laughs> at the healing of the pool of Bethesda, this, yes. the book of John chapter five, he heals the guy and the guy's complaining. And so you have all of these things, disobedient people were shown grace and mercy. Of course he would say to them now go and sin no more. And you go and live the transformed life, but all right. those works and all of the results came after he changed the heart. So I began to understand, okay, I don't get blessed and saved and all these things by obeying God and doing all this to get saved. He saved me. And now as a result, I want to live my life for him. And yeah. so I believe it was a false gospel. I know it. I've studied it now. I've been through seminary. I kind of devoted a large number of years after to getting it right and to understanding, okay, the Bible teaches this. I don't want to mess this up because 
heaven and hell are real. Darkness and light are real. Truth yes. and deception is real. And I'm going to make sure I'm on the right side of that. So um, I came to a clear understanding that I was not a true believer. And I was believing in a false Jesus and a false gospel. Ooh, a wow. false Jesus. There is such a thing, huh? Yep. There According is. to the Bible, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So how do you discern these things? How do you know what's true and false? And doesn't it always, doesn't it sometimes feel really good when it's false? <laughs> oh, sure. I, I, I've been asked before, you know, why do people fall for this stuff? You know, it's a, it's a yeah. pyramid scheme. It's a Ponzi scheme. It's, oh, yeah. of course they're rich. Everybody at the top always is. And, and that's where I was, by the way, my family, I drove a Hummer through college, a Ferrari in college. I had an F430. We lived in Orange County, California, <laughs> wow. oceanfront houses. We had a 10,000, almost 10,000 square foot home in Vancouver, British Columbia. We traveled the world on a Gulfstream jet, stayed in the nicest hotels in the world. Mm -hmm. One hotel in particular, we stayed at the Burj Al Arab in Dubai, 25 grand a night for the Royal Suite. We stayed in it. We lived like rock stars. You look at LeBron James or Conor McGregor, some of these UFC fighters and these big performers now, athletes. We lived like them. There were crazy amounts of coming in, uh, money coming in. At one point, our ministry was on cruise control, bringing in 88 million a year. We were rolling in it. And wow. so in that regard, who doesn't want to hear that God wants that for you? Right. Yeah. Right. In a church that requires tithing, you're going to have that kind of money at the top. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is this fivefold ministry, mm. which is part of this false gospel, because there are pieces of this that also fit into Mormonism. Tell us what this five, fivefold gospel is. Yeah, the fivefold ministry is going to be these different offices or these different distribution points. So like an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, a teacher. So what it creates is a class system. And mm -hmm. you end up with that having to be the way that the church is structured. And instead of viewing it as a full historical view, meaning there were apostles in the beginning that were followers mm -hmm. of Christ and right. there were prophets who were true it makes it so that these are all here and now, and you could be one in this. So I remember discovering that something was very much wrong when I studied prophets and apostles and found that people were paying to be apostles and you could register to be an apostle and you could get a couple's <laughs> discount for being an apostle. I'm not kidding. Oh, wow. Yes. And I saw the business side and people might say, well, oh, come on, you can't just judge it all then based on a couple of bad eggs. Well, this was the norm. This is the norm. And there are, constant efforts to create class systems. And so we had people that were prophesying. They were not saying things that would come true though. Well, no one would come against them because you were afraid to be accused of creating division or touching the Lord's anointed. Right. Speaking ill of the Lord's anointed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, Don't do that. And when you do that, you're going to get cancer. You're going to get this. And honestly, if you think about this, what are the odds that right now people listening have been in a fender bender this year, had a bad doctor's report, gotten COVID, had a child get an F on their report card, had marriage trouble, had someone they love die, or had a job transition in which things didn't really go the way they want. I could go on and on and list about 30 things that have happened. Is all of that the result of them touching the, the Lord's anointed? No, but the odds of people going through tough things are really high. Yes. So we used to call it shotgun prophecy. You just fire it out there and the spread is so wide, you'll hit something. You just yeah. say a bunch of stuff and prophesy. And so 
I begin to look at that not anymore with fear of challenging the system, not anymore with fear that the Lord's going to judge me for touching the Lord's anointed, but saying, okay, there's got to be an objective truth. I cannot be the authority here. I cannot be the ultimate judge and I cannot be the origin of truth. If I am, we're all in trouble. Because, because you're usurping the place of God. You're becoming a little yep. chief God, Absolutely. which again is Mormonism. Yeah. Yep. I, I didn't want to overstep that. And to be honest, it, it put me at ease to not have to think I'm in control, to not believe I'm sovereign. It was peaceful in my heart. There was joy again as God was God and I was man. I was under him, submitted to him and his objective truth through scripture not through somebody's imagination and not through some anointed leader making things up as they go along or taking right. the Bible to create their own business scheme. But mm -hmm. God's word, the Bible, instructing me and me submitting to it as my authority. Mm. Yeah. Well, and, and some... Go ahead. Okay, I was saying something sorry. I wanted to ask about kind of related to this because I've done a lot of work in Latin America. Uh, my parents were missionaries in Venezuela. I grew up there, so mm -hmm. spent half my life in Latin American cultural context still still do today. But one thing that's become very prominent, especially over the last maybe 10 to 15 years, is this whole idea of a prophetic or apostolic covering. So if you're just a pastor, uh, what you need to be able to truly pastor well is you need someone who is an apostle over you. Yep. And so you yep. go look for an apostle who can give you that apostolic covering. Um, and And I see it leaving pastors supposed to be bishops and leaders and shepherds of their congregation mm -hmm. now almost turning their congregation over to someone else. And along with this almost always comes the teaching that when it comes to tithes and offerings, there has to be a mandatory full 10% and Malachi three, six through 10 is the favorite passage. Mm -hmm. And it gets in some churches preached almost every single Sunday. Yep. invoking not just the idea of a 10% tithe, but invoking the curse and the whole idea of robbing God. Where does that fit in with the whole prosperity gospel? And, and what's what's a biblical critique? Because I know the Mormon church, Lynn has even said this, that she heard some of the same rhetoric even within the LDS church totally. on a 10% tithe. Yeah, if you look at the Old Testament and you just study the Bible in the most basic form, you have a number upwards, most scholars would be unanimous in this 20 to 25%. There are even some scholars who have estimated upwards of 30% if we're talking about the tithe. There were different types of tithe. There were different types of offerings. You giving 10%, if you really want to talk tithe, we're all robbing God. So <laughs> even the people pushing the tithe need to start forking over more. But here's the deal. In the Bible, in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, both of those particular chapters unpack a new covenant way of giving, which is generous. It is sacrificial. It is liberal. And it certainly is sowing in order to reap. But the goal is not to get rich. The goal is sowing into a missional gospel work to move the gospel forward. But also it's to give cheerfully and joyfully what you purpose in your heart. So here's the way that the New Testament giving model looks in the Bible is you could have a poor person giving 4% of their income and it is sacrificial and the Lord sees it just yeah. like Jesus with the widow's might. It is weighty and heavy and beautiful. Mm -hmm. And you could have a multimillionaire giving 10% who could give 50% before they would even feel it. And maybe even then they wouldn't, 
God uses the church as a body, like a family, as an ecosystem to bring balance to one another. There are wealthy people. First Timothy chapter six, verses 17 through 19, Paul instructs Timothy and says, instruct the rich to be rich in good works, generous yes. and ready to share. And he says, for God's given us all things to enjoy. I've often said it like this. It's not a sin to be wealthy. It's a responsibility. We're to steward it well. And so the tithe comes in when people try to mandate. They actually are holding the rope so tight. Eventually, they're going to get burnt. They are trying <laughs> to control and play God and force provision in the church. The New Testament model that Jesus calls for, Paul calls for, that we see through the parables and on through the New Testament is this free will generosity. You know what? It may for many people far exceed 10%. But for some in their brokenness and their sacrifice, it may be under that and well under that. The Lord is looking for the heart, not the amount. And the sacrifice is meaningful to him. It's an act of worship. So that is a great way, though, 10% mandates and hunting people down for it. It's a great way to build an empire and build your own religious system. When, when I came to Christ, I remember reading in the New Testament that everything I have is his. That was a huge aha for me, not just 10% that the Mormons said belonged to yep. God, right? Everything I've been given, my health, my, my voice, anything I have, anything that's physical or a possession, all come yeah. from God. Therefore, they are there to bless the body of Christ or those outside if God should so move me to do so, right? Yeah. yeah. Spot on. There is a lot of truth to that. And the Bible, Old Testament and the New Testament declares that God is the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns it all. It's his. I and you, Joel, yeah. everyone, we're just managers of what he gives. Yes. We're yeah. stewards. That's the, the spiritual word that is used in the Bible often. We're stewards. We're given a stewardship. We're managing it. And one day we'll answer to the Lord for it. And it wasn't going to be about building your empire. And we've said it like this before around our church and with our leaders. There's no U-Haul behind the hearse. You're not taking it with you. You are (laughs) stewarding what God's given now. And then Jesus says in Matthew 6, store it for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and wrath do not destroy, where your treasure is, your heart is. He makes it so clear that money and the heart are inextricably attached. They're Mm -hmm. all woven up into each other. So you could look at the way you give and the way you live and all of that and say, where are my priorities? What do I love? What do my affections burn for? And for the Christian, the true Christian, you're going to see resources as a way to bring glory to God, not build your own empire per se. Right. And further the kingdom of Jesus. Amen. So, well, and that, I mean, to me, that kind of leads into your newest book, which I'm not sure how long it's been out. It has been out too awful long, but um, more than a healer, I think is the title. And what is the subtitle? Because I always get it confused, but it's no. about the Jesus we want and the Jesus we need. Yeah, not the, not the Jesus you want, but the Jesus you need. So I guess, um, and I, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm almost all the way through it. But I think what struck me most was in your introduction when you talked about why you wrote it. And what you said was, I don't know, do I have it here so I can quote it? Um, you say that the biggest reason you wrote more than a healer was because we need a Jesus awakening. Mm. And I mean, when I read that, I just like, I didn't know if I should like cheer or cry um, for joy because that 
as we've interacted with people both within the church and outside the church, as we interact with people that are transitioning out of a performance-based religion and don't know where to go, I've been struck over and over with the fact that, well, where people need to go is Jesus. They don't need another religious system. They don't need another set of rules. They need this organic, personal relationship with a pursuing, loving God. And so I wanted to ask you, what were you seeing culturally, both in and outside the church, that prompted you to have this thought that we need a Jesus awakening again? Yeah. Yeah. I was just 2020. There was just chaotic amount of stuff going on. You had COVID, politics, you had race wars, social justice upheaval. You had fighting going on inside the church. It was, you know, red versus blue. And well, yeah. you're not talking about politics enough, pastor, or you talk about politics too much, pastor, or, you know, th this person is experiencing this and this person is experiencing that. You have terms being thrown around and constantly a battle. And I remember being in my house and sitting in my office and praying and thinking, and I, everyone was losing perspective, including me. There was just a, a shortage of perspective. Yeah. And I remember thinking with this book in particular, you know, I, I'm going to write a book about some topics I'm passionate about. And I had an opportunity to go certain directions with it. And I remember thinking, I'm not just going to do some big overview on healing. I don't want to do that. And I don't want to do, sort of just do a rehashing of all of the problems I saw in the prosperity gospel and with these false fake healers and all that. I thought I, the only way to do this is directed to Jesus. I got to direct my own eyes, people's eyes to Christ. And so in all that's happening in the world, we don't just need healing in our bodies. People need healing in their finances, their relationships, our nation, our churches. There's division everywhere. It's chaos is ensuing. And I thought we need a Jesus awakening. We need to go back to, Lord, I need you and communion with God and a zeal for the gospel. And that doesn't mean that we don't need to talk about issues. It doesn't mean, you know, don't, don't go out and vote. Don't stand for your convictions. Don't right. have courage. I'm not saying that. Of course, nobody's saying that. It's in the midst of all that. Let's keep perspective. Let's keep our eyes on Christ. Let, let's, yes, stand for freedom in our nation. And if you're, you know, where I am, a conservative values and convictions that are in that sense moral, but at the same time, I am a resident foreigner still. I'm a citizen in heaven. My true citizenship is there. And so I'm proud to yeah. be an American and I want to stand for American values. And at the same time, I don't want to get so caught up in that, that I forget my ultimate citizenship is in heaven mm -hmm. and my true king is Christ. And so if I vote and the president is the president I want, then great. My hope and my ultimate king is still Christ. If I vote and the president that ends up in office is the one I didn't want, my world is not falling apart because Christ is still my ultimate king, the true emperor and the creator of heaven and earth. So I wanted the perspective in the midst of injustice and questions and suffering and hopelessness and fear to be, okay, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And how did Jesus make that difference for you before salvation and after? How did knowing Jesus and having him in your life make things different? Oh, a, a change, a change in affection, and then a change in, again, what I wanted versus what I needed. So, pre-salvation, I felt peace and hope and the goodness of God 
and a trust in him when I was getting all the things I wanted. <laughs> he was validating. And, <laughs> totally. It's the Jesus I wanted. But give me what I want, when I want it. Then post, I've used this phrase before. When you really get saved, you realize if I have everything, but I don't have Jesus, I have nothing. And if I have nothing, but I have Christ Jesus, I have everything. It's a change in perspective beyond. And so now do I want healing? Yes. Do I pray for my neighbors, my family? Do I want to see people blessed? Of course. Is it a guarantee that it's always going to happen? No. When it doesn't, is God still good? Yes. So people often say, they get a job promotion or a new baby or something. Oh, God is so good. We bought our first house. God is so good. <laughs> yes, he is. And he you is. Know yeah. what? It totally is. But if you had a stillborn, if you had a cancer diagnosis, if you didn't get the job promotion you wanted, if it's hard to pay the rent and you don't even own a home, you know, God is still good because his goodness is a part of his nature. It's who he is, not just what he does. So that's the change that happened in my heart. Wow. And that's the change that all of us need. Um, and that's, I mean, exactly where performance-based religion points people to themselves, what they need to do, how they need to perform, how they need to work. And Grace says, no, <laughs> it, you don't work for any of that. You don't perform for any of that. Christ has performed for you. You get to accept his performance on your behalf and, Amen. and revel in that. Well, Lynn, I think we're pretty close to time. We are. Um, and we haven't even really gotten into some of the core concepts of your book, which has just been so helpful and so practical. So I don't know, um, can we do another episode um, with you and maybe go into some of that, um, into more of your book, More Than a Healer? Yeah. Would you be open to that? Love okay. That. Yeah. Cool. Well. Grace and peace to you, Joel. Until next time. Likewise. Bye. So long. Thanks so much for listening to the Unveiling Grace podcast. You can find show notes and leave us your comments and questions at unveilinggracepodcast.com. We have an exciting announcement. Michael Wilder's new book, Passport to Heaven, is out, and for a donation of $20 or more to the podcast, we'll send it to you. It's the true story of a zealous Mormon missionary who discovers the Jesus he never knew. Just go to unveilinggracepodcast.com and click on the Micah's Book button to get yours. We appreciate your support of the Unveiling Grace podcast, where you can experience a grace that heals.